Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like Peabody, Massachusetts, Palmetto, Florida, Lowell, Arkansas, Petaluma, California, Cochrane, Alberta, Canada, La Paz, Mexico, and Tipton, England, in the heart of the West Midlands. Thanks for being here, and smash that follow button, tell your friends, spread the gospel of gears, the hallelujah of horsepower, the scripture of speed, far and wide. Go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash hpheritage if you feel like tipping your humble host, and thanks to all of you, by the way, who've pitched in already. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, it's a holiday week here in the States, but I couldn't leave you hanging, so today I've got an intriguing story about some very peculiar car collectors. We've all seen a mysterious house with old cars tucked away in every nook and cranny, right? And it's really tempting to go up and knock on the door, but you're never quite sure if you should set foot on the property. Whether you call them hoarders, hermits, or eccentrics, there are plenty of those guys out there, but the tale you're about to hear is on such a scale that it gained worldwide attention. You might say it was a magnificent obsession. And I'll tell you all about it right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Maybe you can't afford that Shelby 289 Cobra or that Porsche 356 Speedster, but having a scale model on the shelf is easy with Model Citizen Diecast. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the massive 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And if you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, they'll give you 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Just visit ModelCitizenDieCast.com and check out their great selection. From race cars to classic cars and everything in between. Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. In the French province of Alsace, only a few kilometers from the German and Swiss borders, lies the city of Milhusa, which unsurprisingly means Millhouse in German, because there was once a flourishing textile industry there. Until the end of World War I, Alsace was part of the German Empire, so it's got an interesting blend of French and German culture, language, and tradition. After World War II, one of the mills in the nearby village of Malmersbach contained more than mechanical looms and massive rolls of fabric. It was home to a growing collection of remarkable old rolling stock, dating back to the dawn of the automobile. The mill was owned by a pair of brothers, Hans and Fritz Schlumpf. Hans was born in 1904 and Fritz followed in 1906. Their father was in the textile business in Italy and Switzerland, but he died prematurely. After his demise, they moved with their mother to Milhusa, which was her hometown. Eventually, they would fill an entire wing of their Malmerspach mill with horseless carriages like an 1893 Benz Victoria, a 1902 Peugeot, pre-World War I cars like a 1912 Lancia Torpedo touring car, and the most exclusive of sports and racing machines like a 1932 Alfa Romeo 6C Zagato, four Mercedes-Benz SSK Roadsters out of a total of 40 ever built, several Mercedes-Benz 540Ks, a 1934 Hispano Suiza 9.4-liter V12 sedan, and the list goes on. That inventory would put the schlumps in the top 1% of car collectors even today, but their unrelenting focus was on one mark in particular. Bugatti. Ettore Bugatti was born into a Milanese family whose entire life was dedicated to the pursuit of art in one form or another. 
whether it was furniture design, jewelry, architecture, or sculpture. At the age of 17, Ettore built a tricycle powered by two single-cylinder engines. And by 1909, he'd founded his company in Molsheim, just an hour from Milhusa. Through the 1920s and 30s, Bugatti's cars gained worldwide fame for their performance, beauty, and artful construction. So Hans and Fritz Schlumpf undoubtedly felt a certain Alsatian pride in these machines. By their early 30s, the Schlumpf brothers had made wise investments in the milling industry and they controlled a substantial portion of production in the region. Fritz bought a Type 35 Bugatti and raced it for a time, but it wasn't until after World War II that they began to amass their collection, just as Bugatti itself entered a sharp decline. Ettore Bugatti had suffered a series of personal and professional tragedies over the years, and he died in 1947. His son Roland tried to keep the company afloat, and he even built a new Grand Prix racer, the Type 251, in 1955. It was a rear-engine car with a twin-plug 2.5-liter straight-eight transversely mounted behind the driver, which is pretty odd for a straight-eight, and not, not a very attractive car actually for the time, and not very effective because the Type 251 was entered in the French Grand Prix that year, driven by Maurice Tritignant, but he retired with mechanical problems after just 18 laps. In the mid-1950s, Bugattis reached their low point in value. Just about the time Hans and Fritz decided to buy as many as they could. The goal was to have one example of every type, and for a while they were paying over market price for what most people saw simply as used cars. And they were mysterious about the whole thing. No one was allowed inside the mill except for their own employees who were, of course, sworn to secrecy. Their collection grew by fives and tens at a time. Meanwhile, Roland Bugatti made one last effort to save his family's legacy with the four-cylinder Type 252 Spider prototype. But the money was gone, and what remained of the company was acquired by Hispano Suiza in 1963. But Hispano hadn't built a car since around 1938, and they'd gone into aerospace manufacturing after the war, but it was a much smaller company, and they were also hard up for cash. So word got out to the schlumps that it was time to make a deal. The brothers bought 14 cars from the firm, and some sources say as many as 18, including Ettore Bugatti's personal Type 41, commonly called the Royale. Now this model deserves a little explanation, because it was the crown jewel. With a wheelbase of 15 feet 4 inches, an overall length of 21 feet, and weighing over 7,000 imperial pounds, the Royale was truly fit for a king. And that was the whole idea, to build the automobile of monarchs, heads of state, and tycoons. Its 12.8-liter overhead cam straight-eight cranked out 580 pound-feet of torque at only 1,800 RPM and could propel the Royale to 125 miles per hour. The engine block and head were cast in a single piece which was mounted in the chassis by means of three bronze bearing tubes that passed through the engine block, making the entire chassis and engine assembly extremely rigid. And this also imparted remarkably smooth running characteristics. The clutch and the gearbox were divorced from the engine with the clutch mechanism mounted under the front seats and the gearbox in the rear, ostensibly for better weight balance, and quieter operation. Three speeds was all that the Royale needed, 
and second gear was direct with top gear being overdrive. Although it's practically inconceivable today, the Royale had mechanical brakes operated through a matrix of rods with each pivot point riding on a roller bearing. Even so, it required a heavy foot and a lot of room to stop this flagship. As was the custom with luxury automobiles of the 20s, a client would buy the running chassis, which by the way cost 10 times more than any lesser Bugatti, and the coachwork would be commissioned to the customer's builder of choice. No passenger car built before or since has the presence of a Royale. It's better compared to a locomotive than to other automobiles. There was just one problem, the Great Depression. The price of a Royale was $30,000, the equivalent of $476,000 today. As a result, only seven were built, including the prototype which was wrecked by Ettore himself in 1931 when he fell asleep at the wheel. And the nose of the car is so long that the damage never really got to the passenger compartment. Much of the design work on the Royale was done by Ettore's eldest son, Jean, who was later killed in a road accident in 1939. Jean was a brilliant designer, and arguably his death marked the beginning of the end for the company. So, when the Schlumps moved in to buy the last cars in the company's stable, Roland Bugatti strenuously objected, but he was helpless to prevent the sale. And along with the cars came a treasure trove of spare parts, patterns, blueprints, and other artifacts. It was a major coup for Hans and Fritz, but in Bugatti owners' circles worldwide, there was angry chatter that these two interlopers, who had no desire to share their cars or their plans, and whose overall motives were unclear, were trying to swallow up everything, literally everything that ever wore a Bugatti badge. And years later, Hans would actually joke that he was trying to corner the market. Any backlash the brothers may have felt was inconsequential, and they pushed on in their quest. And the greatest single deal they ever made was just around the corner. I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage right after this. Horsepower Heritage is teaming up with Valkyrie Racing to support their efforts to combat child trafficking. And with your donation, you can enter to win one of 10 unique digital art pieces of their Polar Porsche 356. Just go to ValkyrieRacing.com forward slash donate 356. And once you make your donation, visit my homepage at HorsepowerHeritage.com. Then click on the contact button and send me your name and the reference number for your donation. You'll be entered to win one of 10 of these terrific art pieces by artist Wade Devers. The entries will be drawn at random on December 20th. And if you miss any of this, don't worry. Just look in the show notes for complete instructions. 100% of your donation goes to help victims of child trafficking in five countries. And on behalf of Valkyrie Racing, thanks for your support. And now, back to our story. The brothers were about to hit the jackpot. It was a cache of 30 Bugattis located in a very unlikely place over 4,000 miles away in the tiny farm town of Hoffman, Illinois, about 40 miles worth of cornfield east of St. Louis, Missouri. The collection was the property of 59-year-old John W. Shakespeare, one of the heirs to an unlikely fortune. His father was William Shakespeare Jr., not an English playwright, but a Kalamazoo, Michigan inventor who patented the self-winding fishing reel in 1897 and manufactured the first fiberglass fishing rods in 1947. 
Throughout the 20th century, Shakespeare fishing tackle was a household name in America. But John Shakespeare's older brother Henry was, of course, the number one son, and he took over the company when his father died in 1950. So John left Michigan to invest in new oil fields that were coming in down in southern Illinois. Now to look at him, you'd think that John Shakespeare was a farmer or a truck driver, but he was racing Ferraris in the mid-50s and quietly spending his trust fund money on Bugattis. And he was eccentric. Because although he had plenty of money for better accommodations, he kept the cars in ramshackle sheds with dirt floors. He'd also start taking one apart and then lose interest and leave it unfinished. Through a contact in the Bugatti Owners Club, Fritz Schlumpf offered Shakespeare a lowball figure for all 30 Bugattis, including a Type 35 racer, 12 Type 57s in all sorts of configurations, coupe, cabriolet and such, three Type 55 roadsters and a smattering of others, and one of the six Royales, a limousine with coachwork by Park Ward of London. To the best of anyone's knowledge, it was the largest private collection of Bugattis in the world at that time, and remember, the schlumps were keeping theirs a secret. There was a heated negotiation, and reportedly even threats were hurled in either direction. The eventual sale price was somewhere between $85,000 and $105,000, and they were insistent that it was an all-or-nothing offer. Adjusted for inflation, that's a little over $900,000, which won't buy you a single Bugatti now, let alone 30. And even at the time, it was considered a low price. In any event, on March 30th, 1964, the cars were hauled out of their shed, towed down a muddy track by a Willys Jeep, and then delicately loaded onto rail cars bound for New Orleans where they were transferred to a Dutch freighter bound for France. The last tinkering Shakespeare did on his Bugattis was to remove the hood ornament from the Royale. It was a sterling silver elephant rearing up on its hind legs and holding its trunk high in the air. And this little feature was unique to the Royales. No other Bugatti model ever had a hood ornament from the factory. He wrapped the elephant in cotton batting and tape and kissed his collection goodbye. With the Shakespeare cars in their hands, Hans and Fritz Schlumpf owned more Bugattis than anyone in history. Through the 1960s, they restored many of the cars, and they converted one of their mills in Milhusa to display the collection with rows of Type 35 Grand Prix cars, endless Type 57s, as well as the rarest of the post-war examples, and a constellation of French cars throughout history, as well as all the other stuff I already mentioned. And... That only scratches the surface. The brothers were in possession of about 750 rare and irreplaceable automobiles. But the tables were turning. Because the textile industry was changing. Synthetic fibers like nylon and polyester had been capturing a greater share of the market. And consolidation was eliminating many smaller mills worldwide. Production was shifting to Asia. The Schlumpf brothers could no longer compete, and there were a series of union strikes. The turbulence of the late 60s had come to their doorstep. Labor unrest grew to a crescendo in 1977, when enraged workers discovered their secret museum and threatened to burn the collection down to a smoking pile of rubble. 
The French government also took notice amid accusations that the brothers had diverted company monies to feed their car habit. Although they denied any wrongdoing, it all came crashing down around them. The mill was open to the public, and the press wrote about their extravagance and self-indulgence, painting them as villains. Authorities seized all their assets, including the cars. Amid the government intervention and the union backlash, and a criminal bankruptcy charge about to slap them in the face, Hans and Fritz fled to Switzerland. They tried to plead their case, but it was to no avail. They spent their last years in exile at a luxury hotel in Basel, fighting a legal battle to clear their names and recover their assets. Hans Schlumpf died in 1989, and Fritz followed in 1992. In the late 90s, the French government released 65 unrestored cars to Fritz's widow, Arletta. Among them were 17 Bugattis, some of which had been in John Shakespeare's collection. A shocking side note, by the way, is that in 1975, he was found murdered in the basement of his Illinois home, shot execution style, and the crime remains unsolved. Today, the Schlumpf brothers' legacy is still where they left it, in the old mill. But after the French government seized their assets, the collection became the basis of the National Automobile Museum. There's 120-odd Bugattis on display, still the world's largest collection, and likely always will be. Eventually, the 65 cars that were released to Fritz's widow were bought by French car collector Peter Mullen, and a group of the unrestored Bugattis is on display at the Mullen Museum in Oxnard, California, just north of Los Angeles. I've seen them myself, and they're in what I would call a state of arrested decay, and there's a ghostly quality to the exhibit, even more so given the history. Clearly, Hans and Fritz loved Bugattis, and I think the real shame is that they probably could have made a serious offer to buy the ailing company in the early 50s and breathe new life into it. I mean, imagine an alternate path of history where Bugatti came back to rival Ferrari through the 1950s and 60s, win world championships, and challenge Rolls-Royce in the luxury car market. The Schlumps might have been widely admired for saving one of the world's greatest car makers. Instead, Bugatti enthusiasts will continue to debate the legacy of Hans and Fritz, and there will always be unanswered questions about their magnificent obsession. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, leave me five stars and a quick review, and you can pitch in over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash hpheritage. Read articles and watch videos on the homepage at horsepowerheritage.com. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.